Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and integrated well-being. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. We love hearing from our listeners. So connect with us on Twitter at Lisa Kamen and HH underscore talk radio and like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. We are talking about the creation of sacred space, whether it's for a holiday, for a ritual, or every day. What does it take to create that sense of the profound, the lovely, the wondrous, and and the special in our everyday lives. And with me today is Rivi Nishama. She's a writer, editor, and community organizer, and the author of the recent award-winning beautiful book, I might add, Recipes for a Sacred Life, True Stories and a Few Miracles. Welcome, Rivi. Oh, thank you so much, Lisa, for having me on the show. Oh, it is it is a pleasure. Let's talk about sacredness. What does this mean? We think we know what it means, but maybe it's not as complicated. <laughs> well, I don't think it is that complicated, and I think it's it's something we all feel and we're all surrounded with constantly. Um, after my book came out, I was giving talks in cities around the country, and one of my favorites was in Manhattan, an elementary school. It was the third grade class of my grandson, Eli, and I asked the children, what do you think sacred means? And they said, something you love, something special, something you care for or take care of. And I thought these were great answers. And to me, a sacred life also means connection connected to others, to nature, and the divine, through love, gratitude, and acts of service. So the stories in my book were about simple everyday things, um, like walking or dancing, cooking and eating, making love, and making lists. They help readers recognize the sacredness of their own lives and ways to enhance it. 
How do we find uh, that sacred space, that sacred place in the center of what now is a very typically chaotic holiday season? What are some simple things that we can do? Um, Okay, well, what I find most important is to start the day with intention and end it with gratitude. And this is something for every day, but especially with holiday madness. So I begin each morning, I light a candle, I state my intention or affirmation out loud, and this gives direction to how I want to be and how I want my day to be. And my recent affirmation is, I'm living with kindness and calmness and love. Hope lights my way. Then Mm. before I go to sleep, I write gratefuls in my journal. And it's also great to share these out loud with a partner or a housemate or child. You know, all the things you were grateful for that day. And my husband, John, and I, we share them each night before sleep. You know, we take turns back and forth and talk about I'm grateful for small things like good lentil soup at dinner time, or and then big things like good health and good friends. And there are three other things I try to do each day that Deepak Chopra recommends. One is to have a time of silence and stillness. You can meditate or pray or just sit still and breathe slowly and deeply. Just a chance, especially with holiday craziness and feeling overwhelmed, just take five minutes to slow down, sit still, quiet your thoughts. Um, The second thing is to connect with nature. And again, this could be very brief. Just take a walk outside, look at the birds in the trees or the migrating geese, or take the trash out at night and look up at the stars. Nature is mystical and healing, and it connects us to something greater than ourselves or whatever crisis we're feeling at the time. And finally, especially at holiday time, I try to practice non-judgment. Um, this can be hard for me, especially at family gatherings and times <laughs> when I'm expected to be happy. <laughs> so I made up a mantra that I say silently when I find myself judging and judging myself for judging others. <laughs> um, my mantra is, I forgive myself. I'm only human. I forgive them. They're only human. And being human is not an excuse, it's just a fact. We're imperfect beings, and that's okay. So true. The, 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 the gifts of imperfection, right? This right. Is, that too is sacred. <laughs> right. Thank goodness. You, know, you mentioned something about, about nature, and I think this is really interesting in terms of the holiday season and, and, and being in winter. Um, when we look at the celebrations of um, Christmas, Hanukkah, Diwali, Kwanzaa, they all involve uh, a ritual that includes light. Right. And and that's because what's important to remember is we're a part of, we're connected to the natural world. And what's happening in that world at this time is days are becoming shorter and nights are growing longer. We're approaching the winter solstice, which this year comes on December 22nd. And on that day, the earth will be tilted farthest from the sun. It's officially the first day of winter, and it's the shortest, darkest day of the year. And thousands of years ago, our ancestors were very scared at this time. They were afraid the sun was dying. So they lit fires and told stories. They sang songs and prayed, all to help bring back the sun. 
And for many cultures, this has evolved into a holiday of light, a festival of light. And that's one reason we string up Christmas lights, we light Hanukkah candles, we gather at Kwanzaa, we tell stories of miracles. In the darkest time of the year, they give us comfort and hope. But what's important first, I think, is that we recognize and accept the darkness in ourselves and in the world. That's the first step to bringing back the light. And something else about the winter solstice, I'd add, that it's a turning point. It's when the days begin to gradually grow longer and brighter, that it's really leading us into spring. And this is good news. <laughs> but meanwhile, it's dark, and it helps us to gather together like our ancestors did, to tell stories and to sing songs and light fires or candle. It's a time of darkness and a time of light, and it's a time to accept that life is both. What are the gifts that we can give to the world at this time? Um, well, Lisa, many of us give gifts on Christmas, Hanukkah, and Kwanzaa, but those gifts are really only symbolic. The real gift we're giving and that's needed is our love. That's what helps bring back the light. And we can give love in simple ways through our smiles, through acts of kindness, by giving thanks you know, to anyone who helps us, um, and giving forgiveness, and also by helping others whenever we can. And I'd like to read a story, since I am a storyteller and my book is comprised of 75 short stories, um, I'd like to read one that takes place on Christmas Eve that's relevant to what you asked about a gift. It's called Serving People Dinner. One nearly freezing Christmas Eve, John and I volunteered to help serve dinner to the homeless at a restaurant in downtown Boulder. I was a little nervous, afraid we'd seem condescending, or that the people we'd be serving would be depressed or crazy or angry, or that I'd be my usual klutzy self and spill cranberry sauce all over their laps. But it turned out not to be that way at all. The place was festively decorated with silver garlands and red poinsettia. Christmas songs were playing over the loudspeakers, and the excitement shown by our guests inspired me to be the very best waitress I could possibly be. Would you like more coffee, sir? Is everything okay, ma'am? Some of the people looked truly impoverished, just wearing thin sweaters on this very cold night. Others looked like old hippies, not that different from our friends or us, a thought both comforting and disconcerting. And while many were elders, there were also young families holding babies on their laps. One woman seemed disgruntled and complained that her role was hard, which it was, so I got her another. And one man made it clear that I was being overly solicitous, which I was, so I turned it down. But the main feeling was joy, simple joy, among the homeless, among the servers, and among the kitchen help, including John, who were cooking green beans and yams and filling plates with abundance. Rushing from the kitchen to the tables to give everyone their turkey dinner and seeing their smiles widen as they received it, more gravy, oh yes, made me want to spend my whole life doing just that. It also made me see that under all the details of our lives, 
we're always just learning to serve each other, no matter what we do. To practice it this simply was a lesson and a gift. Mm. Beautiful. Just lovely. A lesson for us all that the that the gifts that the, the sacredness exists in how we agree to show up for life, right? Right. <laughs> and it is an agreement. It it is yes, and we're always serving each other, all of us. And I think you know you mentioned love as being the greatest gift, and we look at the climate in the world today which there are a lot of things that one could be fearful of, but when we agree to view the world and experience it through the lenses of love, that the world becomes a more hospitable place in spite of its challenges. Yes, love and compassion, yeah. We, That's the way out of the fear. Indeed. We are going to take a break. The book is Recipes for a Sacred Life, True Stories and a Few Miracles by Ravina Shama. And to learn more, please visit ravinashama.com. And on Facebook, that page is Ravina Shama. And on Twitter, guess what? The handle is at Ravina Shama. And let me spell that for you. It's R-I-V-V-Y-N-E-S-H-A-M-A. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Love to read? Looking to harvest your happiness? Then look no further. Lisa Cypress Kamen is an author of three amazing books that will assist in taking your well-being and self-mastery to the next level. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life offers breakthrough strategies for creating your own personal happiness revolution. Perspectives on addiction, an integrated journey to wellness is an overview of the recovery process from a multi-stepped perspective and holistic approach of substance abuse and lifestyle management. Through her third book, Reintegration Strategies for Depression, Anxiety, Anger, Grief, and Post-Traumatic Stress, offers an own nonsense approach to dealing with post-combat civilian life reintegration issues for veterans and their families. You'll find these books online at Amazon.com and HarvestingHappiness.com. Mindful meditative moments are free and relaxing on-the-spot mini staycation journeys designed to calm the mind and soothe the body from the comfort of wherever you are. No reservations or travel required. Check out the playlists on HarvestingHappiness.com and Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes and SoundCloud. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because it's caring, it's sharing, and we're talking about the sacredness in our everyday lives with author Rivi Nishama. Her latest book is Recipes for a Sacred Life, True Stories, and a Few Miracles. Rivi, prior to the break, you told us a beautiful short sweet story about what we can gift one another right now in this in this time of year. And um, I'm wondering if you could talk about the book a little bit and about what it means to have a sacred life and simple ways to connect with the everyday sacredness of being. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, the book um, is comprised of 75 short true tales and it came, uh, the book came to me very magically. It was definitely through inspiration from above. Um, I, I once I was taking a quiz one dark winter night of how to find my purpose. And I was quite surprised to find my purpose was to live a sacred life. And that's what it is. And things just unfolded after that in a very magical way. And I started to remember and encounter all the people and experiences that are featured in my book. So um, that's, there. and I said before, the, the, the stories are about simple everyday things. And they're about also everyday ways to connect with the sacred and to remind everyone of the sacredness of their own lives. And some of the stories are funny, some are sad, but they're all true and real and something you can connect with. And some of my favorite everyday ways to connect connect with the sacred are very simple. And one is to smile. And I find when I smile to a stranger on the street or the person at the checkout counter and they smile back, I feel an instant jolt of connection. It lifts me up. I think it lifts them too. And what amazes me is how beautiful everyone looks when they smile. And another simple way is to be in nature. I mentioned that a little before, but especially if you're traveling now in the holidays, find out where the nearest park or arboretum is and make sure you take a little time to go there and, or to walk by the water and just look at the sunlight on the clouds and feel the perfection that whatever, however bad the world might seem now and Throughout the ages, people have felt, oh, God, this is really bad. But there's a perfection and an unfolding, and we remember that most, I think, when we're in nature. Um, Another simple way to connect with the sacred is to give thanks to others, to the world, and perhaps to something you sense beyond. I believe the whole world is sacred and that we connect with that sacredness when we give thanks. It's like making a circle complete. Finally, and most important, is to be helpful. And that can be through very small things. Um, To call someone it will lift or send them a note or a card. To visit someone who's sick or elderly or you know is going through a crisis. It's even important and helpful to just pray for someone who needs your prayers. And the older I get, and I am getting older, (laughs) I find the gratitude and helping others are the quickest paths to happiness, that even doing a small act for someone else can lift me out of a dark mood. And remembering all I'm grateful for at the end of the day is like receiving a blessing. 
The gratitude that you mentioned is such a powerful tool for connecting with the sacred. You know, it's the reminder, it's the grounding element or the tether, perhaps, to what's real and true in life. Yes, I believe that too. And um, there's, there's ways to be, a lot of the stories in my book actually are about being grateful and also for days when it's hard to feel grateful and and also to have a whole day of gratitude i was once um at whole foods supermarket looking for rice cakes and a, a clerk who helped me he said in parting have a grateful day and i thought mm-hmm. whoa you know how do you do that now i think it starts by saying thank you for the new day just at the very beginning and then to give thanks all day long. And it helps to say it out loud. Sometimes I'll be outside and I'll just say, thank you, trees, you know, for your beauty. Or to my husband, you know, thank you, John, for mowing the lawn. Or thank you, God, for helping mom get better. So whenever I feel grateful, I try to remember to express it, even silently. Like last Thanksgiving, um, that just a while ago, um, being at a beautiful dinner with friends and just feeling so happy and saying a silent prayer of thanks, you know, thank you for this dinner, these friends, and this feeling of love. But there are days when it's hard to feel grateful and when everything looks dark. And I want to say, oh, thank you, Great Spirit, for this challenge or this lesson, <laughs> but what I'm really thinking <laughs> is help, <laughs> you know, make this better. This is not okay. And that's when I remember what Richard Carlson wrote in his book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff. He said the happiest people he knew were hardly happy all the time, but they seemed aware that bad times and bad moods will come. So they just accept them and wait for them to pass. And he wrote, (laughs) they pass a lot quicker if you accept them with grace. So now, on days when I feel too down to feel grateful, I aim to be graceful, to simmer in my dark feelings instead of acting them out or expressing them, and to remember that this too will pass. It reminds me of a story. I work with a woman, <clears throat> excuse me, who's in her 80s, and I, I run a caregiver support group for mostly Alzheimer's families. And this woman, um, she's in her early 80s, and she comes to one of my groups. Why? Because she has a 55-year-old daughter with um, Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And she brought a quote about her commitment to maintaining gratitude for her life that although her experience of the the winter of her life has not been as she would have imagined it to be to find the light to find the joy and the presence amidst these challenges was her goal is her goal yes yes um one of the stories in my book is called grateful in harlem and um I just, I was once, uh, I I hate to tell the end of a story. (laughs) No, don't, don't, no, spoiler alert, no, don't tell it. (laughs) I guess it's a a long story, it'd be too long to read, let me me just say, here we are. But it it was a time that was really the darkest time in my life, and my first marriage had broken up, and 
I had two young children, and I was working in Harlem. And and um, I, 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 they were helping me, though. A lot of the people was working out of a church. That That's when they first taught me, and that was long ago, to be grateful, to keep a gratitude journal. And I wrote, though, there's more to this story. There still were days lost to despair when I felt too broken to ever feel grateful. On one of those days, a cold day in November, I left work, trudged through soot and snow to the subway, and walked slowly, very slowly, down to the train. It was impossible to move any faster because of the three elderly women in front of me who cautiously stepped down the wet, slushy stairs. It's hard for me to tell the ages of older black women. They don't wrinkle and dry up like white people do. But I could see they were very old, these women, with their hollow cheeks and white, wispy hair. And I could tell how poor they were by the thin, worn-out coats they wore in this, the coldest of winters. One of the women, the eldest perhaps, would rest on her cane and speak after each step. She was instantly echoed by her two friends, as if they were her congregation. Praise the Lord, she commanded. Praise the Lord, they repeated. Slowly, carefully, another step was taken. God is good to us, she said with reverence. God is good to us, they acknowledged. All three now leaned on their canes or the railing, tired, out of breath, in old age pain. And while they rested, I wondered about their prayer. God is good to us. They thought that now, shivering in their thin coats, barely able to move. Then their leader took another step, looked upward, and said, It could be worse. Suddenly turning to face me, she asked, Right, Missy? It could be worse? She stumbled almost losing her balance, so I offered my arm. Yes, ma'am, I agreed as we walked down together. It could be worse. Which is why... Years later, I still write my gratefuls. On good days, they're a way to always give thanks. And on bad days, each line helps to pull me to shore and reminds me it could be worse. Mm. And I ended that with, sometimes I put a little quote afterwards, and this one was from Pema Chodron. She said, life is glorious, but life is also wretched. It is both gloriousness and wretchedness need each other one inspires us the other softens us they go together Ooh, i like that beautiful they do go together right we can't really have one without the other the light no, and the and dark that is the lesson seems... of this time of darkness and light that, that they, they go together and it's a circle that keeps going we are nearly out of time, and I, 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 this conversation has has blown by so gracefully and and and, and joyfully, and I want to just touch upon the concept of miracles, mystery, belief. Many of our listeners may not have religious connection, may may not even have a spiritual practice, but the concept of you know finding helpers and mentors and people along the way that support us in of itself is also a sacred practice. Yes. And I think I'm at Christmas and Hanukkah when we're celebrating miracles believed to have happened long ago, believed by some. 
But to think, what if there are miracles happening all the time and we just don't talk about them? Um, I read a book called Stand Like Mountain, Flow Like Water. And the author, Brian Luke Seward, revealed he'd had several mystical experiences. You know, people dismiss them and say, well, thank God, or wow, what synchronicity. But maybe, just maybe, they were miracles. And Brian wondered if we would share these more. It might be a different world, perhaps a better world. I think it would. And since I've been blessed with miracles in my life, I share a few in my book. And I believe that by sharing our miracles or whatever people want, a great good fortune or someone coming at just the right time, it gives other people hope when hope is what they need. And some of our miracles, like you say, come in the form it could, you could call it a mentor, but it could be an angel. <laughs> um, and an angel who appeared at a very sorrowful time in my life was even named Angela. And that's in one of my stories. And what I now believe is we all get to be angels for each other at different times of our lives. And it could be by simply offering deep listening or a warm hug or a smile at the right time or giving a gift to someone who lives on the street. And we might never know we were their angel, but we could have changed their life. And this is the season for angels, so I say, why not go for it? You know, just stay aware, and you'll know when you're called to take your wings. Thank you <laughs> for being an angel to life. us today. Once again, the book is Recipes for a Sacred Life, True Stories and a Few Miracles by Rivi Nishama. To learn more, please visit rivinishama.com. On Facebook, the page is Rivi Nishama, and on Twitter, that handle is at Rivi Nishama. Thank you, dear Rivi, and here come the tunes. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Remember what it feels like to receive a gift? We all know nothing gives happiness like a present, so you should unwrap yours at harvestinghappiness.com and sign up to receive your free ebook, Got Happiness Now, that offers simple, user friendly ways to get greater happiness in your world each and every day. That's harvestinghappiness.com. Lisa Cypress Kamen has built an impressive global lifestyle management consulting company offering applied positive psychology, mindfulness, and integrated well-being coaching. Her services, including addiction and trauma recovery support, as well as life crisis triage, are available worldwide through phone, video, and on-site. In addition, Lisa delivers workshops, lectures, and trainings to corporations and institutions and is a frequent guest expert on many prominent radio and TV shows. Connect with us at Harvesting Happiness for more information. Harvesting Happiness for Heroes is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation offering innovative and integrated stigma-free combat recovery services to veterans and their loved ones with programming that focuses on the transformation of post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth using scientifically proven positive psychology coaching tools and strategies that increase self-mastery, self-awareness, and self-esteem to help heal the invisible wounds of war. To make a tax-free charitable contribution or to learn more, please visit visit hh4heroes.org.
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are going to venture into another territory that most would agree is far from sacred or the creation of a sacred moment in life. This is a conversation about waiting in line, the antithesis of creating sacred space. And my next guest is author David Andrews. And the book is Why Does the Other Line Always Move Faster?, the Myths and Misery, Secrets and Psychology of Waiting in Line. And this book has been touted as the Tao of traffic jams, the Bible of bread lines, and the Quran of queuing by Ken Jennings. David Andrews was raised in Washington State and Bucharest, Romania, a land of impossibly long lines, and once served as a Russian linguist for the U.S. Navy Welcome, David. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, this is a fun subject. You know, when we're looking at the holiday season and people who do venture out into the malls, into the retail stores, are found uh, to be waiting in line. Let's talk about cutting the line. When is that a good thing? (laughs) Well, um, if you're the person being cut, presumably the answer is never. Um, but, you know, there's always reason, good reasons why someone needs to go to the front of the line. And usually when, usually in those cases, they give you a good excuse. You know, the person who's late for their flight will try and get to the front of the line. Or, you know, if you're um, – I would hope that if I'm in an emergency room, that they would, uh, that they would service the person who's getting, having cardiac arrest over the, you know, person with a hand fracture, for instance. So I don't actually think of cutting in line as a very big danger in our day and age. I don't actually see it that often. And usually when it happens, people are fairly accommodating to it. Well, well, it's interesting because really what you're setting up is a protocol of like what is okay line cutting and what is not okay. And when we're talking (laughs) about sort of the the well-being and welfare of another – that it's probably mm-hmm. okay and somewhat expected. But when it's like, you know, the image comes to mind of, of a comedy film I saw where somebody took another person's um, dinner reservation, like that's a no-no. If you're just cutting to be gratuitously cutting the line, that's not good. <laughs> you know, I think, what, you know, when, when usually when there's line cutting, I think it's usually in places of, you know, cross-cultural miscommunication. So you see it a lot in, when when the norms of a certain culture are unclear to you. So you'll have a person who doesn't necessarily understand how lines work and you're not supposed to just barge into the front of the line. I think for most people though, we feel so deeply like nervous about cutting in line that most of us don't actually do it. Uh, the psychologist Stanley Milgram actually did uh, research on this where he and a bunch of grad students would go basically cutting various lines in New York City and, you know, they found actually two interesting things. Um, one is that not as many people as they suspected would actually complain to them about, you know, uh, cutting in line. Maybe they'd grumble under their breath or give them, you know, passive-aggressive looks. But really not that many people complained directly to them. 
And then the other surprising thing is just how horrendous an experience both Milgram and his graduate students felt while undergoing this process as they themselves tried to cut in line. You know, their palms were sweaty and they're just aching with nervousness every time that they did it. And I think it's such a deeply ingrained thing that we learn so young not to cut in line that I really think that for most of us, <laughs> the, the, the moral trigger clicks on when, when we even consider the possibility of cutting in line. I have a little line cutting story. This past Thanksgiving, <laughs> I had gone to New York and I um, went spinning every day. And I went spinning because, of course, I had eaten too much. And there was a woman in line at the spin parlor who had cut to the front of the line to sign in. Now, if, if anybody out there has ever been to a spin parlor, you prepay for that seat on the bike. So, like, we're all going to the same place. It's like cutting the line to get on the airplane. And mm -hmm. I happened to have been feeling quite brazen. And I said to her, you know, we're all going to the same place. And she shot me the most blank privileged, entitled stare. I called it actually a death stare to my daughter who was beside me. And I thought, wow, what was that about? Can you explain? Do you have any idea what that's about? Is it about money, power, privilege? What? Well, you know, I'm, I, I can't say for uh, this specific person. I do know that um, the, I forget his name. He wrote a book called Assholes Theory. And the person who cuts in line and does exactly what that woman did was his like primary example of the personality type that he was philosophizing about. Um, Assholicism. The other thing I was thinking about was the fact that you, this is in New York City, you said. And New York City already is like a city where so many people are packed together that, I don't know, I could see, I could see myself possibly being, you know, having a bad day and and standing in so many lines that I would feel perhaps a little more brazen about just, you know what, I'm just going to move the front and see if anybody says something. Which does not justify that behavior one iota, but I could see that happening more likely in a place like New York City where lines are just more prevalent in general than most of the rest of the country. Yeah, it was an interesting phenomenon. And, and, and I was remarking to myself that here it is Thanksgiving. We're all supposed to be in that sort of kumbaya group hug spirit, being thankful for all the good things that we have in our lives. And here comes this brazen woman who, you know, maybe she just needed to exercise more than I did. <laughs> it's possible. Well, usually, but you know what? I'll never know. But I, I knew you were coming on the show. And so I thought, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share that little story with you. What about the concept of money and power and waiting in line? What's that about? Well, as I was going to say, you mentioned this woman is, uh, seemed entitled and, you know, probably fairly well-to-do. I was going to say that usually most wealthy people have ways of basically pricing themselves out of line standing. So, you know, rather than go to the general, I don't know, spending class, I don't know if, if that's such a thing, but rather than, say, going to the cheaper grocery store where there's often going to be long lines at any, you know, after work or whatever, they'll go to more expensive grocery stores where there's going to be fewer customers, but the, you know, who can afford nicer things. Um, for instance, uh, a good example is, you know, people who are not, who are poor are more likely to have to wait for hours and hours. And if they go to the hospital, it's in the ER where the lines are interminable. 
Meanwhile, if you're powerful or if you have the money for it, oftentimes you can just get the doctor to come to your house. Or mm. another instance is uh, the fact that first-class customers on airplanes, they get their own separate TSA lines where they don't have to wait around with the rest of us hoi polloi. Um, so there's lots of ways that you know, we, we equate time with money, and therefore if you have a lot of money, you, don't, you can spend that instead of your time. And I think we see that every day um, in a lot of different ways. It does make sense. What are some ways that we can decrease the wait time or perhaps use it more productively or mindfully? Yeah, well, um, the, the simplest answer is the one that we all know, but sometimes is unavoidable, which is simply just don't, you know, don't go into traffic during rush hour. If you can avoid it, don't go to the store on Black Friday. <laughs> Otherwise, and this is part of, you know, people have been studying for a while now the psychology of queuing, which is, the, is basically finding ways to occupy yourself while standing in line. And companies sometimes do this. So, for instance, if you go to Disney they'll, and you stand in the lines at Disney World, they'll have lots of ways of entertaining you while you're standing in line. Um, but, you know, simpler than that is, the, you know, the tactics that I took when I was a, like a small child, when you having to wait on your parents all the time. And so I always made sure to never leave the house with my parents without carrying three things, which is a book, uh, my Game Boy, and a Walkman, you know, finding ways to occupy <laughs> yourself. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, how I prepare, prepare, prepare for the adventure. And now we all have these devices called uh, smartphones. And so there's, never been easier to occupy yourself while standing in line. The other thing I've noticed just in the process of researching my book is just being aware of the mental effects of line standing, like what, what it does to me makes me more mindful of how my own anxieties about my wait time might be fueling, fueling bigger anxieties. And just being mindful of those has really, I don't know, it, if it doesn't make it seem shorter, it, it changes my relationship to the weight, just being conscious of it, which is a nice side benefit of writing this book, I think. I want to read something from the back cover of your book, and then we're going to go to a break and we'll carry on the discussion because I really do want to know why the other line really does move faster and is it true? Um, the back <laughs> cover has something very, very interesting on it. It says, waiting is torture. A unique feature of modern Western society, queuing is a world unto itself with its own laws, its own psychology, its own history. It is universally loathed, perpetually misunderstood, actively studied, and in the hands of a few masters like Walt Disney's Imagineers, ingeniously manipulated. And now, in Why Does the Other Line Always Move Faster?, does this become utterly interesting? And these are some of the questions that are answered in the book and in this discussion, because it's, it's not the line that really bugs us. It's what we are, are or are not doing while we're in it, right? So it's our relationship to that process that's, it, that's the issue. Yeah, so I'm, and I'm basing my, my knowledge of this subject really on, on two people who jump-started the, the research of uh, the psychology of queuing, one of which is uh, 
David Meister, who's a Harvard business professor who wrote an influential essay called The Psychology of Waiting in Line, and Dr. Richard Larson, who also goes by the name Dr. Q, who ostensibly studied how to make businesses more efficient, but then also made the began making the point that, well, we can't just be talking, we can't just talk about uh, business efficiency. We also have to talk about how consumers experience these long wait times. And, you know, perhaps, David, we're going to need to know, jump it, off um, for a break because the producers are lined up to uh, play some commercials. And when we come back, we will carry on the conversation about queuing. To learn more about David Andrews and his book, Why Does the Other Line Always Move Faster? Please visit www.workman.com. Once again, it's www.workman.com. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Lisa Cypress-Kamen author of Got Happiness Now, is also a prestigious TEDx presenter. Her talks, The Mysteries of Fear and the Inversion Theory of Joy, can be found online at TED.com and on the Harvesting Happiness YouTube channel. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Check out the critically acclaimed documentary film, H-Factor, Where is Your Heart? An insightful visual journey from Lisa Cypress-Kamen, showing that every person possesses the means to be happy. Follow Lisa and her nine-year-old daughter, Kayla, as they travel the world on the hunt for the universal keys to human happiness. Their question? What makes you happy? Discover the origins of human happiness, where to find it, create it, and keep it. Find it in our shop at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Sorry to keep you waiting while we had those commercials lined up, but we're talking right now once again with David Andrews. He's the author of Why Does the Other Line Always Move Faster? The Myths and Misery Secrets and Psychology of Waiting in Line, something that most of us loathe but find a necessary evil as part of the human experience. So, David, prior to the break, we were talking about the history of queuing, and you mentioned two researchers. And I'd love to know a little bit about their research and if, indeed, the other line does always move faster. 
Well, the, the basic, most basic insight that the, both Dr. Richard Larson and David Meister had was that, you know, sometimes businesses can't fix the long waits. Sometimes they wouldn't even want to, even if they could. So, like, an example would be, like, a theme park in which, you know, long lines uh, both signal the popularity of a ride, and if everybody, nobody had to wait for something, they'd be done with the park in like two hours. So, so if long lines are just a necessary thing, perhaps it'd be e- easier to simply fix people's perception of the problem, because oftentimes, you know, our our anxieties make the wait seem longer than it really is. There are ways to possibly decrease um, how long we think we're waiting just based on, on, you know, sometimes even simple tricks. There's a great example that Dr. Richard Larson uses um, when he's, uh, he wrote about uh, elevators in Manhattan. And so for a long time, buildings were getting lots of complaints about how long it took elevators uh, to, you know, get down to the lobby. And uh, so the simple fix that they d- d- fell upon it's just putting mirrors next to the elevators. It just gives people something to occupy their time. They can fix their hair. They can check their lipstick, et cetera. Uh, there's another example from uh, the Houston airport a number of years ago in which people were getting – the airport's getting lots of complaints from about how long it would take for their baggage to reach the carousel. And so <laughs> the elegantly simple solution was simply to send all the baggage to a much further carousel, making people – have to walk much further to get there. And the complaints dwindled to almost nothing. So these things that barely cost the business anything, but just by having the simple tweak made people not experience this as a, as a torturous weight. Interesting. And, and, and it does work. Here, here are a couple of other questions I have for you. Well, first, I, you still didn't answer the question of, is the other line always moving faster or is it just <laughs> our perception? Well, it's largely based on our perception. I mean, I can't speak for each individual line, but it does it does seem that whenever, for instance, if I, you know, uh, in a traffic jam and I move to the other lane because I perceive it as going faster and suddenly the lane I was just in speeds up, it seems to always happen. But it could also be that my perception of my wait time is deeply colored by how unhappy I am or... Or just, you know, the effect of the grass is always greener on the other side. Um, so I can't speak to, like, whether or not <laughs> physically, objectively, the other line is moving faster. But certainly we know that subjectively uh, our own unhappiness can make it seem like the other line is always moving faster. And we dislike lines so much. I mean, I can speak from my own personal experience because it's delaying my gratification, it's like, you know, like costing me time to get what it is I think I want. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, our society deeply believes, whether we want to admit it or not, that time is money. Um, I always, and we, and we also, it feels like punishment. You know, this is, this is why, you know, from early childhood, we're taught to equate waiting with a form of punishment. When, you know, we send toddlers to timeouts, uh, prisoners are doing time, teenagers are given detention, and it's a way of punishment. So when I'm standing in line, I, it kind of feels like an, an added tax that, like, I feel like I'm in a cage when I'm in line. You know, I have, unless I have a choice to step out. Otherwise, it feels like I deeply don't belong here. 
But there's another way. Like you, you, you touched upon Walt Disney's um, philosophy and the imagineering aspect, but there's another one. Like that's the free stuff philosophy. Like if you're taste testing or sampling something while you're standing in line and making idle chatter about it, that too tends to move things along more quickly, but doesn't actually change the duration. Um, uh, yeah, objectively doesn't change the duration, but yeah, I mean, just, just the fact, you know, when I, when I turn to my neighbor in line and we roll our eyes and kvetch about how long it's taking, just the act of doing something, it really makes the, just complaining about the weight makes the weight seem shorter than it, than it would be without, uh, you know, me standing in a, as a solitary loner, not talking to anybody brewing about how unhappy I am, just the act of talking to other people. So, you know, this is one of the eight propositions about the psychology of queuing that David Meister brings up in which solo weights feel much longer than group weights. And this is the reason why, for instance, Disney has separate lines for people who visit the park alone, you know, because they don't want a bunch of loners, you know, ruining the mood for everybody else. Interesting. Well, and you know, I think it touches upon the, the, the concept of community. And if we're talking about making the queuing process a little bit more mindful and pleasant, that when we are engaged in conversation, even if it is fetching, um, we're communing. And so something else is happening that um, is the opportunity for the silver lining or a little bit of a magical moment, even when it's an unpleasant experience. Yeah, and, and, and uh, you know, other other research has also been done, and specifically, it's it was surrounding like uh, uber long lines. Like the 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 specific instance was uh, lines waiting for the first Star Wars, uh, the Phantom Menace from about a decade uh-huh. ago. And what they found is like there'd be very real kind of communities forming at the, especially at the front of the line where people had a you know. These instances where, like, oh, I have to go uh, go get some food or change my clothes or go use the restroom. Can you hold my place for me? And just, like, having people in one place, you know, with a, with a common goal in mind does foster a, a sense of community. And the, the researcher even came to this con- conclusion. There's kind of a – I think he says there's, like, a mini life lived in line in these circumstances, because you you know you you have in jokes with this group you have you have ways of communicating with one another that form over you know in this case is a couple of weeks waiting in line for Star Wars tickets but I think on a smaller level these things often happen as well it's just the amount of time that people were waiting for these this particular event allowed that to become even more focused. What about the relationship between queuing up and thinking? I'm sorry, say it again? You know, queuing up, waiting in line, and thinking. I mean, can, the, can standing in line actually be good for your thought process? Well, I mean, uh, I, can, I can speak for myself, which is to say that there's something about being, in, <laughs> being forced to be still, forced to, you know, especially in, especially in circumstances where I don't have a choice to get out of line. Say I'm at the TSA or the DMV. There's something about not being able to do anything else or do anything to relieve the situation 
uh, puts me in, you know, in touch with my thoughts a lot more than I normally would be. Now, sometimes those aren't good thoughts. It could be about how miserable I am in this circumstance, but it can also just take the the pressure of thinking you have to do a dozen different things into uh, into this kind of empty time that allows you to be alone with your thoughts in a way that other times I'm usually too busy to to do that as often. We are almost out of time, but I would love for you to share a couple of shocking discoveries of ways that people have been known to skip the line. And you know who you are out there, I'm sure. Well, uh, so uh, I I can think of two off the top of my head. Uh, One is found often at uh, airports, airplanes particularly. Um, There's a phenomenon that... uh, people in the airline industry call miracle flights. So uh, what happens is there's lots of people who uh, enter the airport and board the plane uh, in wheelchairs and then somehow miraculously don't need those wheelchairs when they get off the flight. And so they call it miracle flights. I know. Ooh, didn't think of that one. (laughs) Unless there's some, really some miracle going on. Um, I, I doubt it um, <laughs> because, you know, uh, and then the other one, there was a, there was an instance. So Disney world, Disneyland, Disney world, several years ago, I think they've changed their policy since, but if you have someone who has an illness that doesn't allow you to wait in line for very long, or if, you know, people of a certain age can't stand in line for an hour for a ride. And so they would have, they would allow those people to go to the front of the line along with the party that they're a part of. So, Ooh-hoo. you know, all the grandmas, grandma can't, can't stand for that long, but all, so all the people that are with her also get to go to the front line. And so apparently there were people selling VIP, kind of someone with a disability pass was allowed, would, would uh, hire out their services so that people who could afford those services could just go straight to the front of the lines. Wow. Wow. Well, you know what? Our readers, our listeners are going to have to buy the book and read more. The book is Why Does the Other Line Always Move Faster by David Andrews. And in it, he discovers the myths and miseries, secrets and psychology of waiting in line. So this holiday season, you might consider this as a stocking stuffer and to alleviate some of your stress with a little humor. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen. And my guests today, David Andrews and Rivi Nishama, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And remember, we love hearing from our listeners. Connect with us on Twitter at Lisa Kamen and HH underscore Talk Radio. And like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with TogiNet, KBUU, and available on PRX, the public radio exchange.
Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new broadcast and continue to harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on iTunes and SoundCloud. To learn more about Lisa's global practice as an applied positive psychology coach specializing in lifestyle management as well as addiction and trauma recovery services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness.